Hello, my name is Hindel Grossman. I'm a divorce attorney in Newton, Massachusetts, and welcome to Inside Divorce, a podcast series published on the 15th of each month. Each guest is an expert in the field of divorce and has fascinating information to share. I hope you'll listen. Hello and welcome to Inside Divorce. My name is Hindel Grossman and today I have the pleasure of sitting with Brad Baldridge, who is a college funding specialist and college planning expert. Hi, Brad. How are you today? Hi. It's nice to be here. Well, you're in the Milwaukee area and I'm in Boston, Massachusetts, or actually Newton, Massachusetts. So we have some slight differences in our view of the world. Yes. But we're going to talk more generally today about college funding. But first, please introduce yourself and let our audience know who you are and what you're interested in. Again, my name is Brad Baldridge, and I'm a financial planner, and I also work as a college planner. So I help a lot of families figure out how to plan and pay for college. So things like figuring out financial aid, need-based aid and merit aid, and loans, and negotiating with schools, and all the different pieces around getting your student into school and paying for school and that type of thing. Well, it's obviously hugely important given the cost of college these days, the difficulty in choosing school and making sure it's the right selection for the right kid. So there's a lot of pieces for you to put together. I hope people come to you early enough to get that done. Is that your experience? Unfortunately, people could start much earlier than they do. I mean, when you and I went to school, it wasn't unusual to wait till the end of the junior year or even senior year to start figuring it all out. Uh Now I'd encourage families to use most of the junior year if you can, and maybe even into the sophomore year with your student. And then of course, parents can do some of the things, you know, the parent responsibilities around paying for college and will we qualify for aid and some of those things you can do no matter what age your student is. So you could do that as a freshman or sophomore. Oh, that's interesting. Right. If you've got complications, divorce would be a key example. That's a pretty big complication. Yeah. Right. Or business owner, or, you know, I've worked with a family that had twin juniors and twin sophomores. So they had a lot of work to do. So they should start earlier. And again, for some, it'll turn out that, oh, we started early and we maybe we didn't need to. But, Mm. you know, I've never, ever had anyone tell me I started this too early. Yeah, probably no downside. (laughs) I've had lots of people tell me we, we were a little late to the game or a lot late to the game. Wow. All right. So, you divide your work into stages, early and late stage, You, as you had mentioned to me. But I also want to tie in the whole divorce theme, because divorce, I'm a divorce lawyer, and you handle, you see problems getting financing and making college selections when the parents are no longer living together or married. Mm-hmm. So eventually, we'll tie this all together with the divorce right. theme. But tell me about what is early stage and what is late stage, in your opinion. All right. So I divide late stage and early. It's easy to talk about late stage first because late stage is kind of what I just mentioned, where you've got kids in high school and you're trying to figure out college. So now you actually have to visit. You've got to figure out financial aid and financial aid forms, applications and applying and essays. And what do I want to be when I grow up? And there's lots for the student to do. There's lots for the parents to do. And that's late stage. And that, you know, again, ideally sophomore, junior year, you're jumping into that. Mm-hmm. Early stage is any time before that from I've got a kid in grade school or I think we're pregnant or whatever it might be where you say, That's okay. very early stage. Uh-huh. It is. Um, but many families, the secret is out. College is expensive and challenging. So many families you know, are going to start a savings plan with their youngest kid at birth, or maybe they'll start it right after daycare or something like that. 
which is all good. But that again, that's the early stage. You're still going to have to do late stage when you get there. You know, you may show up late stage with a big pot of money. Yeah. Or none at all. Either way, you're still going to have to do the planning around picking schools and applications and all that stuff. Let's talk about most parents look forward to having their children go to college. That's one of their aspirations for their child to be well-educated and Mm -hmm. self-supporting, launch into the world, be a productive member of society, as I like to say. So do you recommend that parents start contributing to some sort of college savings account very early on or put that same money into the parents' retirement accounts? Both can be the right answer. What I recommend parents do at the youngest ages is just figure out what their college commitment is. Because if they feel like they're going to pay most of the college costs or a lot of the college costs, and they're thinking maybe it's also going to be more expensive schools and that type of thing, well, then you just have to factor that into your budget and just say, all right, well, we can't buy quite as large a house because we need to be putting 500 or 1,000 away for college. Now, the challenge that I have for very young families is you don't know what the college landscape is going to be like, and you don't know if this, for sure your student's going to college, or maybe your student's going to be that full ride kind of kid and he doesn't need college savings or whatever it might be. So, you know, so often I tell people to split it and you know, make sure you're maxing your retirement first at the very young ages because you can always slow down in retirement. And the challenge with having a big pile of college money is it does count against you for financial aid. So that's where it gets more complicated. If you're on your way to becoming a surgeon and you know you're never going to get need-based aid, that's a different challenge than if you're currently in the Peace Corps and you're not real sure where your income is going to be when your kids are older. And maybe you want to avoid having too much set aside for college, again, because it counts against you. So are you able to work kind of backwards and say, if you're at this income level, you can count on, at least now, maybe not then when your kid's ready for college, but at least for planning purposes. Now, if your income is $100,000, you can count on getting aid of X amount of money so you can kind of plan around it. Is that something a parent can do? Right. I mean, certainly as part of the late stage, we definitely do the calculations and figure out exactly how need-based and merit aid may work at a particular college even, right? So we can get it down to the college level and say, well, this college will give you aid, this college will not. Yeah. In the early stages, the younger the child, the more nervous I get because we're we're essentially saying the system we have now is what it's going to be like 18 years from now, let's say, which is a pretty big leap. With COVID just rocking through, there's been a lot of changes. And you see it out there where they say the cost of college has been growing at faster than inflation. And there's some truth to that, but there's also a scare tactic in there because, yes, the top line price of college has been going up. But at many schools, the scholarships have been going up almost as fast. Mm-hmm. So the net cost of college is been going up, but not you know at one or two or three percent, not six, seven, eight percent like the top line. Not as fast as it looks like. Because colleges have pushed it to the limit. Most families are really starting to say, "Is it worth it?" And what are some other options? And mm-hmm. for many colleges, they don't have the luxury of raising prices indiscriminately. Now Harvard and Yale and the top schools, they can do what they want because they have millions of applicants every year to those top schools and they can do what they want. There's just huge demand for them. But the rest of the schools, it's hard to predict where they're going. Let's talk about the early stages and these parents, these hypothetical parents want to start putting some money away for their children. Where do they put it? The one of the most popular and probably rightly so is the 529 plan. It's essentially designed to pay for college. When you put the money in, you might get a little bit of benefit from your state. 
but it also grows tax deferred. And if you spend it on college, it's tax free. So it's from a tax perspective, it's the best it can be almost. Of course, the downside is if you don't spend it on college, then you have to pay taxes and penalties to take it out if you were going to spend it on a car or some other non-education related expense. So is it true that if one child doesn't use the 529 funds in their name, another the funds can be used for another child? Correct. So you can change the beneficiary in a 529 to somebody that's related to the current beneficiary without causing any tax implications. Like a sibling. Right. Brothers, sisters, nieces, nephews, parents, grandchildren. So you can go up a generation or down a generation. So there's quite a lot of flexibility, but you can have too much, right? I mean, that's one of the processes of if you had one student today and you're looking at a state school, I think you mentioned your state school is about 30,000 a year. So if you already had 120,000 saved and you're going to a state school, you'd say, okay, well, I think we've got enough or, you know, we've got as much as we're going to spend. We'll stop putting money into it. We're always doing that type of calculation of, well, I've got three kids, could be 100,000 each. I've got 50,000 in there. I can still save, no problem. But eventually you might say, well, two kids are graduated. One, you've got one left. He's only got one year left and I've got that year covered. You know, we're done. Yeah, no more savings needed. Right. So what does 529 money cover? I presume tuition and I presume room and board, but what about the other incidental things related to education, books, travel to and from the school? So it is tuition and room and board if the student's full-time. Okay. And then a computer and books. When you get into the college world, there is what's called cost of attendance, which was tuition, room and board, books, fees, beer and pizza, the whole cost of college. 529 does not cover the travel piece and does not cover the personal expenses but it covers everything else. So no beer and pizza from a 529. Correct. All right. And do the payments have to be made directly from the 529 to the institution, like for books, or can it be reimbursed? Nope. You can be reimbursed. You could, as long as the withdrawals and the expenses happen in the same tax year, you're good. So some people will pay the bills and then reimburse themselves. Some people will just take it out in lumps. First bill is coming. It's probably going to be about 12. I'll take out 10 now. Mm-hmm. Then I'll add up what I spent on books and I'll add up, you know, all the little pieces together. And then by the end of the year, I'll reimburse myself up to the max that I can. Say a family has three kids. They have a 529 for each one of them or you just create one. And if there's account for the oldest or the middle or the youngest, you tell me in a minute which mm-hmm. one. And then whatever's left over after the first is finished from college, obviously it's rolled over to child two or child three. Both of those will work. It depends on your state because like here in Wisconsin, you get a a tax break per beneficiary. So you're going to want to have an account for all three kids oh, in that situation. Yeah. yeah. And then sometimes you'll also have accounts for mom and dad because now you have five beneficiaries to get tax breaks for. Well, mom and dad change their mind. They decide they're not going to college and then they roll it down to their kids. Well, that's interesting. But they get more tax benefits that way. So there's a lot of planning around maximizing the tax mm. benefits of And avoiding tax penalties, right? I mean, we'll Mm -hmm. put some disclosures out there, but there's lots of pros and cons that people need to be aware of. Yeah. Can you borrow from a 529 for non-educational purposes? No. Oh, okay. They're not really borrowable at all for any reason. But you can, like I said, take out non-qualified withdrawals and take your lumps and then change beneficiaries and some of those things. So, And there's also, you're allowed now, they, they broadened it a little bit, you can spend that money on grade school and high school. So people that are... Oh. Sending their kids to private schools and have tuition. Yeah. 
just tuition is available for that. Okay. And then you can also up to 10000 per beneficiary spend it on repaying student loans. So again, you get to the end of the process and you've got some leftovers. If your students have some loans or you can use some of it to knock down a loan or two. Well, that seems odd to me because if there's enough money in a 529 money to repay a loan, then why did they qualify for the loan in the first place? Well, again, many loans, there is no qualification per se. You're eligible to take the money whether you need it or not. And it's the uncertainty issue of my oldest got one third of what we had then, but it turned out my youngest didn't need so much. So now mm-hmm. I've got extra so I can go back and pay off loans for my oldest or you know, whatever. You know, it just gives you some flexibility. I have a question that's, I don't want to go too far into this topic because we don't have enough time to talk about all the interesting things about this, but the current topic is, of course, absolving people of interest of their student loan debt. You know, it's in the news. It reminds me that student loan interest rates are so high. Right. They're, what, between like 5 and 8% typically? Well, yes. I mean, it's, yeah, a little more complicated than, of course, but... So the government sends the rates for the two government loans. So there's a plus loan and a direct loan to the student. Yeah. Both of those rates are set every summer for the coming school year. So they're looking to be around 4 and 6% coming up. They're not terrible, but they're not great. No. So some families, again, they say, well, I could borrow money a lot cheaper than that, especially like a home equity line of credit or something, although mortgage rates are coming up now as well. But yes, for some families, if you have strong credit and et cetera, you can borrow money at a lower cost. But some families don't have homes and home equity and great credit and that kind of stuff. And right. the government loans are the best they're going to be able to get. Okay. It's always surprised. I mean, we, we do want to educate our, our population in this country, and we, it would be nice if we could make it as affordable as possible, not just with the lowering tuition costs, but also making money cheaper to borrow, mm-hmm. particularly when the interest rates were substantially lower than where they are at this moment. As I said, I don't want to go too far down that bumpy road. So divorce. How can divorcing parents best plan, and maybe planning isn't the point, deal with the fact that they are now two separate households and trying to send kids to college? First, I know the fact that they're not getting along makes it much more difficult. Yeah, I mean, I've had situations. First of all, if you can get cooperation, that is great. Because there are opportunities. I mean, there's certainly downsides around divorce, right? You go from one household to two, expenses tend to go up, and there's just not as much money to go around typically. And that's where the stress, I think, comes from is, well, we used to have one house payment. Now we have two or two rents or whatever it is. And there's a strain financially, and college can be a casualty of that, or at least college savings. But there's also opportunity because the way the FAFSA works currently, only one of the parents would be reported. So their income and their assets are reported and the other parent is not reported. And the way that it's determined now is where the student spent the most time in the previous 12 months. It's going to change soon where they've just put some changes down that are going to start in 2024. Students starting school in 2024, I believe it will be where they're going to, it'll be closer to who gets to claim them on the taxes. It'll be based on who provided the most support. Oh, not who the child lived with most, but who provided the most financial support? Correct. Now, oftentimes that's going to be the custodial parent all the same, but not always. And there's the challenge with divorce where you can give up your right to claim the student. They tried to make it simpler. I think they just made it complicated in a different way. You know, it's complicated before. It's still complicated. It's just differently complicated. Well, I mean, the person who pays child support 
might think that they are the one that's providing the greater support for the child, even though the child lives with that parent less than 50% of the time, for example. Right. And the rules aren't real clear. And that's Uh, the challenge. uh They've set down the groundwork, but they haven't given us examples and details on what qualifies as support and what doesn't, et cetera, et cetera. So it's just like tax law when they it takes a year or two for people to come up with how it really works, and hopefully they will give us some guidance. But because you can potentially plan, whatever the rules are, you, if once you know the rules, you say, well, I want mom on the FAFSA or we want dad to be on the FAFSA. Mm-mm. We can then follow the rules and put mom or dad on the FAFSA on mm-hmm. purpose. And then from there, we can also say, well, then who should own the 529s? And that can have an impact on financial aid. I had a a mom that was going through divorce. She was going back to school herself, so she was didn't earn a lot of money. And it happened to land on the like to say I was brilliant and made this happen, but it was a little bit of a coincidence (laughs) that her low income happened in the year that showed up for the college. Uh huh. And the school she was going to had a program that said if your income was below whatever the number was, I think fifty six thousand ring is what I'm thinking. But if your income is below fifty six thousand, then tuition is zero at this institution. And once you're in the program, you don't, you know, you stay in the program. So we're not going to go back and check again. So she was a student the year that they were looking at. So her income oh, was below. Yeah. And it all worked out. She got in the program. She graduated and went on to get gainful employment and is now making more than that. But her daughter is still in the program. So now they're not paying taxes or not paying tuition at... That worked out nicely, didn't it? For the four yeah. years, right. But you got to be aware of all the different rules and yeah. understand how the FAFSA works. And you know, we yeah. had to work with the school quite a bit to... You know, because there was a middle of a divorce, they had a joint tax return instead of a, and we had, so we had to work on dividing it up. Right. And as if they were single and get all those numbers and put them through and, yeah. and get it done. To show that the mom was under the 56,000. Correct. To qualify. Yeah. Okay. FAFSA only accepts one parent's financial information, right? There's no right. way of. And if that parent is remarried, then the new spouse would go on the FAFSA. So that has occasion we're talking about, should we get married, you know, in a blended uh-huh. family situation? Uh-huh. You know, sometimes there could be some detriment there around college as well. You mean for the new household income? Correct. So a divorced but then remarried person might have to incorporate the new spouse's income. Correct. No matter what. And generally, they don't care about things like prenups and that type of thing. Where Oh, interesting. You know, I'm just going to put it in writing that. My new spouse's stuff is not available for college. That doesn't matter. And that new spouse may have children of their own to pay for, right? That's true. But it, yeah, and that, that would be the upside, right? Is if you've got in blended families where you've got kids from both parents, it, sometimes it makes sense to put them all on that family because now when you have three in school or four in school, it's a lot easier to qualify for eight. Yeah. So I've seen that situation too, where you know you wanted to move... They had a higher income, but because we had so many students, that more than offset because you generally divide by the numbers. Your results are divided by the number of students you're supporting. Uh So if you're supporting a lot of students, it lowers the numbers for you. Well, interesting. So when you say aid, do you mean aid to the student or aid available to the parent for like a parent loan? Both, right? So generally speaking, you you fill out the FAFSA and that determines 
what's called the expected family contribution. And they're going to change the name because it implies that that's what you're going to pay and that's not true. Yeah. They're going to change it to what's called the student aid index, but it's a number. And then you use that number to figure out how much aid you're eligible for. So as an example, you know, let's use your state school. Your state school will say $30,000 to keep things real simple. You fill out the financial aid form. And if it comes in at 20000 then you take 30 minus 20 means you're eligible for 10000 of aid. Mm, okay. Now, some colleges have money to give. You know, the Harvards and Yales and a lot of the high-end schools will meet all your need all the time. So if we can do some planning to get your 20 to go to 15, well, then you're going to need more and you're going to get more at Harvard and the high-end schools because they've got large endowments. Now, at the state school that we were mentioning, they might say you need 10. All we can offer you is a $5,500 loan for the student. Yeah. And then the parents can borrow the rest. I see. And you do some planning and now instead of needing 10, you need 15. You get the same answer. All we have is $5,500 loan for the student and the parents can borrow the rest. Yeah. And parents can borrow the total cost of school on a plus loan. You, they can borrow that $30,000 no matter what. So even if you're independently wealthy, Bill Gates could take a student loan mm. and pay for the f full cost of Harvard or whatever school, even though they quote unquote doesn't need it because student loans are available again to everybody. For every student. For every student. Well, and again, the exception of that would be your, based on your credit. So if you have very bad credit, then you may not qualify for even the government loan. The government loans are pretty friendly, but if you have a full bankruptcy or really bad credit, then there might be some issues. Well, it's really, I mean, it's tough enough to do this planning for one child, but if you have more than one, it gets obviously much more complicated. Absolutely. I mean, I've seen situations where the divorce is happening while the kids are in high school or high school and college and that type of thing. And it can get very complicated very quickly where we're trying to say, well, if we do it this way, the aid will go up, but then you won't have access to this. And right, we're trying to balance all the different needs of continuing to fund college, balancing out the rules around child support, et cetera, et cetera, and then dividing the assets and what would be considered fair Yeah, all at the same time. And Again, sometimes with the planning, we can say, well, if we do it this way instead of that way, it's a five or $10,000 difference in the college piece. I can see the value of having someone with your expertise as a college funding coach or expert as part of the team in divorcing people because it's a, yes. maybe not when the kids are under five, but certainly right. 10 years old and over. I can see that that would be important because sometimes the divorcing parents get stuck on this issue. And if the kids are young, they say, the parents say, well, we can't resolve it now. We'll just kick the can down the road and we'll come back to court and do it later. But no one really wants to come back to court later. They just want to eliminate this one obstacle, one very large obstacle, financial obstacle they have at the moment to get divorced right now, knowing that right. they'll somehow figure it out later. Right, exactly. And I think one of the, I mean, even if you can't agree, if you could just do something, a non-committed type of discussion a little bit about who might have to save or who's in and who's out when it comes to college. Yeah. Something that's non-binding, but at least so you have some understanding because I, I meet a lot of parents, you know, on the backside of that where they were divorced for 10 years and now they're trying to figure out college and they're shocked to learn that the 529 money disappeared or one of the spouses is just not in a position to help at all. And therefore it all falls on the other and neither side wants to disclose their financial situations to the other. I mean, once right. they're divorced, they don't feel like talking about that anymore. Right, exactly. 
And if you can't talk with each other about it, maybe just talk to the student about it so that the student has yeah. realistic expectations. I suppose. Or someone like you who could be in the middle and keep those secrets. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I, yeah, exactly. And I've seen a lot of parents where their goal is really to keep the kids out of the divorce oh, yeah. mess, right? Uh, where yeah, yeah, for sure. Their number one goal is to figure out college and help their kids and do all that stuff. And they're willing to make the sacrifices to get the divorce done where it has the least impact on the kids. And now we are saying, well, if we do it this way instead of that way, we get more money for college. And then they say, well, that's great. Then that's the way we'll do it. It's probably easy answers to some of these things if people had the wherewithal to listen. Right, exactly. But, and right, and that's, of course, you have to weigh that with the complication of we don't need one more thing on the table to work on because it's already complicated enough. And I, I get that where sometimes the right answer is we just can't add it to the mess. Can't do it now. Yeah. We'll do it later. Exactly. Yeah. Well, Brad, this has been very enlightening. There's certainly a lot more to talk about on the subject of college financing, but we'll have to save some of that for another day because yes. we're running out of time today. So thank you very much. Want to give your contact information so people can find you? I have a podcast and a number of free resources, EFC Calculator, that talks about calculating with divorce mm -hmm. and without and those types of things. Very good. And all of that's available at my website, tamingthehighcostofcollege.com. And you can reach out to me if you want to talk to me directly through that website as well. But like I said, there's free resources, newsletter, podcast, all kinds of stuff to get you started. And if you want to learn more, go ahead and reach out. Call you directly. All right. Yes. Well, thanks for your time today. Thank you. Sassoon Simrod has attorneys who meet your dynamic needs, handling legal matters, including tax issues, real estate transactions, business law, and of course, divorce and post-divorce matters. I can be reached to the same number, 617-969-0069, but my email address has changed. It's now hgrossman at sassoonsimrod.com. Sassoon Simrod is spelled S-A-S-S-O-O-N-C-Y-M-R-O-T. Thanks for listening. Disclosures. The information provided to you today is for educational purposes only. It is not intended to be specific recommendations or advice. Please consult with a qualified professional before acting on any of this material. Investing involves risk. Depending on the types of investments, there may be varying degrees of risk. Investors should be prepared to bear loss, including total loss of principal. 529 College Savings Plan Disclosures Investors should carefully consider investment objectives, risk, charges, and expenses. This information and other important information are contained in the Fund Prospectuses, Summary Prospectuses, and the 529 Product Program Description. These documents can be obtained from a financial professional or directly from the plan's website. Please read them carefully before investing, which may include financial aid, scholarship funds, and protection from creditors. Before investing in any state's 529 plan, investors should consult a tax professional. If withdrawals from 529 plans are used for purposes other than qualified education, the withdrawal could be subject to a 10% federal tax penalty, state penalties, federal income tax, and state income tax. Brad Baldridge's Disclosures Brad Baldridge is a registered representative with Cambridge Investment Research. Securities are offered through Cambridge Investment Research, Incorporated, a broker-dealer, and member of FINRA and SIPC. Brad Baldridge is also an investment advisor representative with Cambridge Investment Research Advisors. 
a registered investment advisor. Baldridge Wealth Management and Baldridge College Solutions are affiliated. Cambridge and the Baldridge Companies are not affiliated. The registered branch location is at 10521 West Layton Avenue, Suite 200, Greenfield, Wisconsin, 53228.